Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rieken. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Wasanish people. Welcome, Welcome to, to the show. show. Well, hi, Courtney. Hi, Ted. What are we talking about today? So today we have Dr. Ryan Rhodes with us. Uh, he is a professor in the Exercise Science, Physical and Health Education, we fondly refer to as EFI. Uh, he's the director of the Behavioral Medicine Lab. He's the associate director of the Institute on Aging and Lifelong Learning. Um, and he's an exercise psychologist. So we're very lucky to have Ryan with us. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's super fun. Um, so when I was reading this through, I looked and I saw behavioral medicine. Um, and so I'm not actually sure what behavioral medicine is. And so I thought you could unpack that for us just a little bit for, especially for me and for our listeners. Sure. I mean, it's, it's about health and, uh, and, and health outcomes, but ultimately when we often think of medicine, we think of prescriptions and various biochemical type factors. And so, uh, one of the most important factors to health is the behaviors, our lived behaviors every day. And so behavioral medicine is a particular focus on how our lifestyle behaviors affect our health. Mm. We were talking earlier also about intentions and how intentions underlie behaviors, but they don't always line up. You know, we might have an intention to to do something, um, but whether or not we realize it and continue it, uh, I think that's an important part of your work as well, is it not? Like how do we follow through on resolutions and things that... Absolutely. So this caught my interest very early in my career, uh, partially because um, the science at that point, the exercise science and applied health science, was very focused on building good intentions within these models, which just suggest that once you have that intention, you're, you're pretty much good to go and you'll, you'll engage in that behavior. And so I came from it both from a, a scientific perspective, as did many of my colleagues, looking at saying, well, wait a minute, the, there's a lot of discordance between intention and behavior, but then also from a practical perspective. So, you know, one of the most famous examples would be New Year's resolutions. And they almost are, are, are laughable at this point at some, for some people <laughs> because they're things that we intend to do that ultimately somewhere down the line we know probably aren't going to happen. But, of course, we form intentions throughout, uh, all throughout uh, um, our, our life and across the year as well. But New Year's resolutions are just a great example of where almost everyone tries to form a couple of new intentions, uh, you know, for, for desirable behaviors. Yeah, and it doesn't really happen. I don't know. I'm not in the minority when I'm like, I have all these great intentions. And I even do that at night too, where I go to bed and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get up early and I'm going to work out and I'm going to have this shake and do this thing. And then the morning comes and it's it's just, that's not what happens. Um, and, you know, New Year's is just kind of like part of part of all that. So what are you finding in terms of how do intentions, how do we make intentions and behaviors match up better, right. if that makes sense. Right. So that's what we study in a, a few different ways. So one, we will engage in a series of observational studies to to just observe what happens when people form these intentions and look at the follow through and then attempt to predict who succeeded and who didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also have a series of intervention type studies where we we help people um, who have good intentions and attempt to to help people stick to them. 
Um, and so in our, in our research, we found that there's at least three major factors um, that come into play when you're dealing with uh, health behavior intentions in particular, but I think they can translate to, you know, any of the best of intentions, so to speak. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the number one factor to consider, of course, and you're never going to get away from it, is motivation. So wanting to actually do the behavior. And when we think of something like a New Year's resolution, or we think about these intentions we have the night before when we're trying to do our physical activity in the morning, um, but particularly when we're thinking about long-term behavior change, we often want or we're motivated for the outcome of the behavior. So in other words, what the behavior can do for us in the long term, but not the actual behavioral experience itself. So people's intentions are often to get fit, get healthy, these types of things, but that's not the behavior. So often people will say, well, I intend to do exercise because I love it and can't wait. It's I, I intend to exercise because, um, you know, I want to uh, lose some weight or I want to improve my health. And so you can start to see right there that there's a breakdown in the experience of the behavior versus the outcome and the type of motivation. Right. So what we find uh, right away is that the people who actually have that desire to do the behavior, not surprising, are more likely um, to do it. Right. But there's a lot of people who just want the outcomes and and really haven't either given a lot of thought to the behavior or are hoping they can just kind of sidestep that experience. Grin and bear Yeah. So it's, it's like wanting to get from A to B without having to start at A and go what's in between those that's two. That's right, that's right. And yeah. the, the journey itself is ultimately the lived experience. And yeah. so it, it's incredibly important to start thinking about that uh, when building an intention because mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to escape that. Um, when we're talking about something like physical activity, this becomes extremely important because you're taking your body out of rest. Um, you know, you're, you're actually willfully uh, exerting you know, uh, you know, making your body tired. Um, and when we look at the, the, the research on affect, so the feeling experiences of physical activity, it's actually a really interesting science. The only thing everyone can agree upon is that it feels great when it's over. Yeah. So everyone agrees. <laughs> everyone agrees when it's done, that was great. Yeah. Right. Um, unfortunately that doesn't predict who engages in it again. Right. It's almost like we have amnesia and we just go right back through the same cycle. Mm -hmm. What actually predicts the behavior is how it feels during. Um, mm -hmm. And what's quite interesting in this area is that there's incredible variation in how people feel during exercise. Um, so some people, it actually feels quite good. You know, when we get into the real vigorous levels, almost no one thinks that feels very good. But, right. uh, when we're talking about moderate and lighter intensity physical activity, some people find it dr a dreadful experience. Um, and some people find it quite a, a good experience. And so this particular factor is something that we often overlook. Mm -hmm. But when you're thinking about building good intentions and sticking to them has to play into your plans right away, you know? Are you going to find this pleasant? Um, are you going to find it unpleasant? How can we make it more pleasant? Self-paced physical activity becomes extremely important. Um, but this, this, you know, we don't even have to talk about physical activity. We can think about healthy eating. I mean, if you don't like broccoli, it's going to be a challenge, right, to, mm -hmm. to follow through with those intentions. And so often it's going to have to find elaborate ways to include it in meals where, where we can get that taste component um, more to someone's liking. Mm -hmm. Right. And we can't seem to avoid this. It seems to be a very primal approach avoidance drive system. Right. And so even though, you know, we have these best intentions, which are these very well thought out plans about what we want, when we're tired, um, 
we we often will result back to that very primal system that, whoa, I don't have a good experience with this. I'm backing off and I'm going to find a reason to say no. Right. I want to cycle back for a minute to the, you had talked about um, physical activity and its impact or, or, or people avoiding it. <clears throat> and I, I think you'd done some work not long ago as well on the impact of an absence of physical activity, i.e. what's the, what's the cumulative health effect on your well-being um, sitting in an, in an office chair eight hours a day or sitting in front of a computer screen? Yeah. So, so the, so the it, and, and I think I remember you saying uh, that there hasn't been a lot of uh, systematic long-term research on the effects of inactivity on human well-being. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting point. Um, when we start thinking about human movement, uh, there's, a mov- there's a movement, I should say. There's, there's ultimately um, a lot of research being done in trying to conceptualize this now. So when I'm talking about physical activity um, with some of my research, it tends to be more at the moderate or vigorous intensity. Mm. But light activity is obviously extremely important. And where a lot of the sort of epidemiological and physiological research is now headed is in sedentary behavior. Because as you're pointing out, we're spending a lot of time being sedentary. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're starting to show that, um, you know, what you do for those full 24 hours matters. Mm -hmm. So this idea of of going out and and walking for 30 minutes and then sitting for 23 and a half hours... (laughs) Um, is is showing, as you point out, some some deleterious effects to our health um, that are just beyond the moderate and vigorous intensity. Now, there is some vigorous debate about that right now, um, that there can be a bit of a buffer to, you know, you can sit for eight hours if you've engaged in a lot of high intensity and moderate intensity physical activity. But the simple fact is that most people don't do that. And so we're, we're kind of getting a double risk factor now. We've got people um, not engaging in even light activity. We're sitting at our desks or we're sitting watching screens for most of our waking life and we're not even offsetting it with even 30 minutes of higher intensity activity. So yeah, this is quite a concern. And so you were talking about, because here I am taking notes for my life, um, but here you were talking about three different aspects that you found. The first one was motivation. Right. So motivation, you're not going to get away from. So we, do, it, have to, we do have to deal with our motivation and right. our wants and our desires. Uh, the next one would be self-regulation strategies. So um, regardless of how much you want something, in our societies right now, most people are so busy. And we're a very augmented society. We're very much, we just want to add things to our life, but we Mm. never really take a step back and say, well, if I'm going to add this, what am I going to let go of? Um, And so that creates quite an issue when you're trying to add things like physical activity and, you know, healthy nutrition and all these things that do take time and they do take effort. Um, And so what we find is that people have to become master planners um, and master prioritizers. And so we do have a solid area of research showing this now that sort of having an intention is not enough. So having a will is not good enough. You have to have a way. Um, we find that that some of the best research so far is showing that uh, planning, having very good planning skills, so knowing when you're going to do it, how you're going to do it, um, and then having some sort of backup plans to that. You know, what happens if this goes wrong? What am I going to do? As well as self-monitoring your, your behavior um, is extraordinarily important. And fortunately, I mean, that, this is where technology has really, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's there for us now if we, if we want it. We have wearable monitors. 
um, that can let us know how little activity we did each day um, <laughs> or how much. Um, and uh, we, we certainly um, are able to set goals with our, with our smartphones and with various, uh, various types of platforms. I mean, there's still nothing wrong with the old, uh, you know, buying a diary and, and keeping ta tabs that way. But we do have technology now that can help us. Now, I preface this again because some people go out and they buy these monitors thinking that this is going to be all they need. And of course, it comes back to those three factors. I mean, this helps you self-regulate your motivation, but it, right. it in itself is not the means right. um, that's going to change that experience. Um, but it certainly, we find that it's a very predictable factor in helping people change behavior. Sweet. Okay, good. What's the third one? The third one is the least studied, but I think the most interesting and where our lab is doing um, most of its work now. And these are what we call reflexive factors. So these are factors that um, make our behaviors more into a reflex and require less forethought and, and less overall contemplation, determination, motivation, self-regulation, these types of things. And the classic one that we're looking at right now is, is habit formation. So, you know, people often use the term habit to describe a pattern of behavior, but habit is actually a psychological uh, construct. And it goes back to, uh, you know, anyone who's taken sort of Psych 100 go goes back to that classical conditioning work that was done in the 30s um, and, and earlier, showing that if you pair a stimulus with a response, you eventually can provoke that response with that stimulus. Mm -hmm. And so um, habit is just a much more specified version of that. So it's this idea that if we engage in the same behaviors, under the same situations, eventually those situations can basically motivate us underneath our awareness to engage in those behaviors. We like we like comf the comfort in doing the same things. Right. Um, and so we're investigating whether people can form things like physical activity habits. And this is controversial, of course, because you know physical activity takes a lot of work. It's 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 it takes energy. Um, but what we're showing is that at least some of the initiation of physical activity may be habitual. And so some of our early work is suggesting that people who engage in a, in a routine structure as they're, as they're starting to try to develop physical activity um, are more likely uh, to find it easier over time. Um, go and, ahead. Yeah, so by routine, do you mean like doing it at the same time every day or? Yeah, so, yeah. so every, every type, of, um, every, every type of, of cue could be different for people. So it could be a social cue. Um, but time of day is a wonderful cue. So the example would be, you know, going for a walk after dinner. You know, dinner ah. usually only comes up once a day. And so that becomes a very salient cue as to a routine behavior. And so um, people who are start, people in our research who are, who are doing this type of thing are finding that it's less work over time. To, and, it, and, it's, and, and, and the, the contrast would be someone who's saying, well, I'm just going to fit walking in whenever I can. So, right. you know, on Wednesday, it's in the morning and on Thursday, it's, you know, late at night and, you know, and so this requires constant self-regulation. Right. Um, and so habit formation is, is a much more efficient thing for people. And so we often form bad habits based on this, For sure. but we're looking at whether we can form good habits. So, so kind of a, a bad habit, good habit e example, I think the, you know, the, the classic one you hear about people who are trying to quit smoking and they've been so conditioned to these different triggers that... Um, when the phone rings, they'll reach for their package of cigarettes because Absolutely. you know mm -hmm. to, to have that cigarette yes. and talk on the phone, or if you have a cup of coffee or a drink, then it's where's the ashtray, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and then on on a plus side, I know you've done some work around um, exercise 
and the relationship between people who are out regularly uh, exercising and dog ownership. Yes. I have a dog that um, is my stimulus to have a routine that says, get out and go for a walk. Because yeah. if I forget or don't want to do it, he still does. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we're having some fun with that because that's almost like uh, the double habit component. So dogs right. are habituated for time of day. They're mm-hmm. quite fascinating. With They start to understand their times for walks. Um, and will come to their owners, which becomes yeah. a cue right. um, in a chained habit. And and then often owners will go on the same type of walk, mm-hmm. um, you know, the same length, the same turn, and and uh, and that in itself becomes a different type of habit. So we're investigating those type of factors because, um, you know, many of these health behaviors are a lot of effort. And so if there are ways to reduce the motivational barriers and reduce the amount of self-regulation, I think it can be quite helpful for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going back to... This is super helpful, especially for someone like me, and I think for a lot of us, right, as we start to want to choose healthier habits, and I'm in my 30s, and so my metabolism has decided to age right along with me. So I'm like, okay, I need to I need to make this more habitual, so I don't grow, you know, I've stopped growing up, I don't want to grow out, um, it's good for my body to be healthy. So when you're talking about motivation, um, and how it feels during, and how you can make it more pleasant, um, have you done some work around that about people, what people can do? Cause there are a lot of times where I go and I, and I work out and I hate every minute of it. And I try to be positive <laughs> and I try to pump up my music and like talk about how good it is. And I hate it. Um, so I'm, and I try to, I try to figure that out and how to change that. But is that something that your lab is looking at or tips or tricks that people could use to make themselves not hate it so much? Yeah. So it's a, a, a great question. Um, and I will preface with saying that if you dislike uh, a behavior um, like physical activity, it's going to be harder to form a habit with it too. Right. So we have shown that, that ultimately you do have to find a behavior that you at least find benign <laughs> in order to form <laughs> a, a, a habit. Because, you know, otherwise you, you it, it brings you back to the dread Right. Of, of doing it. And so it's hard to become, you know, we talk a lot about mindfulness. Well, this is mindlessness and it's, it's hard to be mindless on this when, when you dread it. Right. So, so yeah, they are linked, um, in terms of, of the types of, of tricks about this. I mean, one of the first is probably to, to really give this some serious thought about what you find, um, pleasant and acceptable and what your conceptions are of why, um, someone is, is engaging in a behavior that they ultimately don't like. Um, because it is, it is effortful and it is taxing and it is going to be hard, uh, in self-regulation if you really just don't like that behavior. And so, you know, I often say, well, if you went to the gym last year and it didn't work, why are you trying that again this year? Um, and we fortunately have a ton of different types of activities that people can try. And this really is the chance to be creative in, okay, what, what's going to stick with me? Um, you know, and so that, I, I think that's one of the more important factors. We do look at things like trying to to um, engage in social activities because that helps improve um, the stimulation component of it and makes it a little bit more meaningful. We also uh, some of the things we're looking at is is trying to build it, you know things like physical activity into other meaningful activities. So walk to the store, dog walks, um, you know, so or or even active transport. Um, so that these are things that one 
is trying to go from A to B and ultimately is getting their activity. So there's more meaning to it than mm. just pure exercise. Right. I've got nothing against exercise, but um, for some people, if, if that's all it is, then it might be one of the fastest things to cut from their list. Right. Which makes sense, especially if we're so busy. What's been the... Um the success, if that's the right word, of, of some of these platforms that have tried to combine the uh, kind of the seductive and even addictive behaviors of uh, internet gaming or uh, screen use with a, with physical activity. So, you know, there was the bicycles that people could ride to power the, the video game, or there was the, I think it was Nintendo made the Wii and mm -hmm. Microsoft had their Xbox and so on. Have those made any kind of an impact in terms of... Uh, technology as a, as a way or a portal to fitness or is that something that so that's a yeah it's a great question we've even done some studies on that in our lab um so it's a complex answer um the 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 simple answer is they make um they are more enjoyable so they do modify these sort of affective qualities that we've been talking about for motivation um the challenge is to maintain that so what we do find is very short-term kind of like a bells and whistles effect. And anyone mm -hmm. who bought the Wii probably knows this, that it got a lot of use in the first couple of months. Yeah. Right? Sure. Yeah. Um, and then eventually just sort of sits there um, yeah. and and other other things have, have surpassed it. Um, what we've learned over the years in X, you know, we call them Xer games. When it, when, what we've learned with Xer games is that we probably were too hopeful in the beginning. Um, and some of that was because we were a little ignorant on the video game industry generally. So the video game industry itself has a lot of games that don't really work with people and people are disinterested in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even among many of the, the high selling games, they constantly have to change it up and have supplements and have new versions to keep people's interest. Mm -hmm. um, so this idea that we could just put out a game or two and then everyone would do these regularly was was naive for, mm -hmm. for us in, in health behavior and exercise. And we have a couple of uh, recent studies that that uh, I've been involved with that have shown that if you if you have new games coming every week or two, um, it does help maintain the motivation and the adherence rates are higher. Mm. But it shows that it's still a very um, it's it's a difficult area that one has to continually satiate that need for something new for variety for excitement, um, and that people can um, they grow bored of games, but again they grow bored of regular video games too. Right. So it's a it's a more natural phenomenon that we always want something new and and greater. Right. It's interesting to think about this evolutionarily because 150 years ago we didn't have this problem no. as a species. No. We didn't have record levels of obesity and inactivity and so on. We we used our bodies to grow food and survive or to work or uh, but but somehow we haven't developed the mental capacity to to learn that it's important that we continue to be active when we don't need to be active the way the the technology has allowed us to become these really passive consuming beings without exerting any energy and so the weight piles on and the muscles grow slack and the you know we we've been, we've evolved to be working hunting moving things and we're now in an age where our movement consists of touching a five-inch glass screen 
for the most part. Well, and it happened really quickly too, right? It's not like this has happened over like 10 generations where we had time to adapt. It literally went one generation was doing that in some ways and the next generation was in front of screens, right? In in a lot of ways. Um, And so I think for a lot of us, you know, I'm listening to you, Ryan. I'm like, oh, that's my problem. I'm not a master planner when it comes to food and exercise, right? I'm a master planner with the rest of my crazy life, but not when it comes to exercise and with food. And I'm not, you know, I, I haven't made my behavior more reflexive and you know I hate the gym um and I used to love kickboxing but I'm like oh no like I don't have time to do that because I if I don't go if I go kickboxing I don't have time to go to the gym as well and um so I think a lot of people from my generation are often in the same boat because we don't put the same priorities to it and it's not a lack of wanting to do it but I think we don't have a way to fit it into our lives as easily as we would for tv or for whatever for what have you so some of the stuff that it's coming out of it is helpful in a digital age where we're trying to figure out how to manage all of this. And are these, are, what are you working on right now in terms of your, in terms of where you're at um, with all of this? Like, is there, are we still continuing to learn more and do more in relation to how we incorporate physical activity as easily as we do other things? Yeah, I, I think that the more, most exciting area is, in particular, is the uh, the affect area, mm-hmm. trying to learn how to um, engage in associations, affective associations of, of something pleasant with physical activity. So we're still continuing to work on that and develop that. Um, so we're going, I think there will be a lot more research on that um, in, in the coming years. And then also this area of the reflexive factors. So mm-hmm. habits, the one we also work on in the, um, in, in our lab is, is identity formation. So it's this idea that, uh, when we self-categorize, we go to great lengths to maintain that. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the, you know, again, sort of early social psych with, with cognitive dissonance that once we have decided that this is who we are, that is almost like an elastic band that pulls us back into these behaviors. And we've found in our research that people who move from I exercise to I am an exerciser, um, that self-identification becomes its own motivation to stay with it and, and hold to those intentions. Where if you don't self-identify often, uh, it just gets thrown at the back of the list and we, it drifts away just with many other intentions. Mm-hmm. So, so we're looking at how do we shift people in this self-categorization and some of the interesting areas that we're, we're looking into is the use of technology like social media and how can self-presentation perhaps change some of our identification. But it's real early stages on how we can do that. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to know, I always like to know people's stories, right? So how did, how did you come, because exercise psychologist was a new term to me, makes sense that it's there, right? But I didn't actually even realize that there was such a thing as exercise psychologist. And um, I know enough about your work to know that you are, you, you do, you do um, publish a lot. Um, so you're very well versed in this area, but what brought you here? Like what brought you to the place where you're at? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's. Uh, many things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think that some of it is my own personal experiences with physical activity and exercise and the fact that I often don't like it just like everyone else. And so I find it fascinating. Well, what's keeping me and why did I do this? So a lot of self-exploration on that. I came through uh, psychology, so I've always been interested in human behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and health behavior seemed like a very uh, at the time, it was a new and interesting area. Um, I st- think it still continues to be that. Um, and trying to understand human motivation. And I started in um, personality research. So I was always interested in trait level explanations for why 
people do what they do? And are there, are, you know, there are differences that people can be exposed to the same stimulus and have a very different response, um, which fascinated me. So a lot of my early research was in personality traits uh, and health behavior. Neat. I, I'm still thinking about something you said a, a few minutes ago around the, <clears throat> the, the idea that once people self-categorize and, and then it becomes almost like this elastic band that you kind of keeps pulling you back into that. And, and it's, um, you know, I, I've watched over the last decade or so, what I would see is this kind of an increase and in, in a rise in what we would could call identity politics, you know, permeating the campus and how people self-identify with one or group or another. And, and I'm wondering, uh, and, and this is no one's joined the dots yet. I'm, I'm sure on this, but, but how do we, you know, how do we remain kind of fluid and open to different ideas when if your research is showing us that once we once we categorize ourselves in a certain way, there's this pull back into that particular orientation. So how do we how do we leave one orientation or ideology or, or worldview or approach to something and move to another if the if the research is telling us there's a tendency to be this um as you said, uh, uh, not not quite an, an, uh, a confirmation bias, but a cognitive dissonance that's yeah. going on there. Right, yeah. and it and it tracks back to the stuff we talked about with affect um, mm -hmm. that we 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 find it extremely unpleasant to be in a state of dissonance. Mm -hmm. And so anyone who's an exerciser saying, well, I just do it because I would feel so guilty if I didn't do it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that extends, that psychology does extend to other identities. And just like habits, sometimes we have perhaps identities that we shouldn't have. So some mm -hmm. people will self-categorize very quickly, you know, if we go to something like health behavior again, um, as, well, I'm just not that type mm -hmm. of person. And it's like, well, you know, health is very important. <laughs> Maybe yeah. you should think about becoming that type of person. Um, but but yeah, it, it becomes its own debilitating factor because it mm -hmm. means also that they are kind of rigid, as you were pointing out, to change. Um, and so we're just in the early phases of studying um, this type of factor, the, the, the identity and self-categorization. But I agree. I think it's a very interesting area of study with a lot of application well beyond health behavior. Yeah, yeah for sure. Wow. See all my notes? I'm yes. very excited. Yeah, um, sorry, just wrapping it up. Sure. Is there anything that you can think of that we haven't touched on yet? No, you guys have been doing a great job, I think. Oh, good. Anything that you want to weave into the conversation? And uh... Sure. I, I think that there's something I haven't mentioned. Okay. <laughs> and that is um, because it doesn't really have much to do with translating intentions into behavior. Mm -hmm. And that is knowledge. Uh, about the benefits of physical activity or or healthy eating and these types of things. And so I find that fascinating. So often we'll look at, well, what predicts, but what doesn't predict? And it's quite interesting that repeatedly um, we often show that just knowing that these things are good for you is is no longer sufficient. In fact, it probably never was sufficient. And so um, often we will base our intentions off this or we will, uh, we will engage in interventions, either self-talk about how good it is for us or, you know, if you visit a doctor, they'll talk about, you know, the, the, the importance of these health behaviors for your health. But that has almost no association with the pe people translating those intentions. Um, it, it does associate with forming the intentions. Um, but once you form those intentions, it's, it's not really a factor of translation. So I think that's always important because those, that's kind of in some ways the, the, the great, um, um, 
that's almost like the the, the magic uh, elixir right there is look how good this is for you. You know, physical inactivity is associated with over 25 chronic conditions. Mm -hmm. And if you did this, you could, you know, I mean, really, if you could wrap physical activity into a pill, it would be the most prescribed medication in, in the world. Yeah. Um, but that has nothing to do or almost nothing to do with the people who do it versus the people who don't. So I just find that kind of an interesting and a fascinating way and in some ways very disappointing because mm -hmm. that's where a lot of our public health interventions always try to rationally right. argue why you should do this. Yeah. Well, yeah, and like, yeah, I, I'm a type of, I used to work out all the time. I've done kickboxing. I've done you name it. And then I got busy and it fell off my plate and I haven't been putting it on as much as I can. Um, but that's something that like I know that physical activity is great for me. I know I feel better when I do it. I know that I am happier when I do it. I know all of these things i'm a very I, I get it and still getting it back on my plate is difficult yeah. excruciating even so it's interesting it's a little comforting actually to know that it's not just me who is like okay this is i i know it's good for me and i'm still not doing it because the reality of it is is that there are different ways that you can actually make this easier right because i think everybody wants to do it in one way shape or form we get that we should do it and once you start doing it from a person who did used to exercise on the regular i do feel better and i had more energy and blah 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 um getting over that hump of oh my god i hate this so much um and every time i do it i hate it um does get easier but having a plan in place and Absolutely. examining your motivation and understanding the different aspects of it that can help you to set yourself up for success absolutely yeah Cool. Thank you so much, Ryan. Well, thanks for again being for having today. me. That's very exciting. Yeah, thanks for stopping by, and uh, we will look forward to more conversations. I'm Wonderful. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Great. Learning Transforms is brought to you by the Faculty of Education and the Association of Graduate Education Students. Learning Transforms is produced by Julie Remy. Sound design is by Xavier Arujo. Special thanks to Ryan Rhodes. I'm Ted Regan. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. Thanks for listening.